Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Should we do some podcasting bits and pieces? Mark's. Yeah, still I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm just making use of the time when yes. all that's happening is fiddly diddly. Okay. I'm ready to go. You ready to go? Yes. Well, we're recording and we're ready to go, and we can we can hear buzzy, exciting camera work. Are we now? Is this part of the podcast? Is it, you, you explaining I that think, we're hearing? I think we've been faded up. Okay. Let's listen. Oh, they've been quiet. No, no. Are they going to sort of fade in the bit of me having what Hugh referred to as a mini tent? That's true, the mini-tent. Mini tent. The mini-tanty, the mini-tanty. Mini mini oh, mini-tanty, I beg your pardon, yes. Uh, John Stewart is on the show next week. Yes. And the subject of Hugh Grant will come up. Because <laughs> obviously... You know, just, just to remind people that what uh, John Stewart said was that Hugh Grant is the only person that has ever been banned from the show. And remember, we've had fascist you know, he said he's, he, someone, asked, someone asked John <laughs> Stewart, that, was Who, who's the worst guest you've had? And he said, Hugh Grant, yes, well, we've had dictators on the programme, but Hugh Grant behaved worse. And okay. then when Hugh came on the show, we, we said asked that, him and about he it. said, yes, I did. He was actually very him. sweet about it. And he said, yes, he did have a, a, a mini-tanty. A mini-tanty. A subject which will come up with John Stewart are next Thursday. So this is the first of our many references to the fact that, one, we have cameramen in the studio. That's them making a noise around. around. And the second thing is that next year, because of the election... Is there uh, an election? Apparently so. I hadn't noticed. Really. Uh, this show will not be on next Friday because, obviously, the, this result just in from Wolverhampton Northwest, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, that was, a, incidentally, that was a very good meta... Hugh Grant joke, is there an election I hadn't noticed, but you just it just passed you by. Yeah, well, that, that's my role, is, okay. to, is to have things pass me by, as you know. Don't Let It Pass Me By was a UB40 song, one of their least... Yeah, let's not even begin. But no. the other thing about Hugh Grant saying mini-tanty is it suggests that that scene in Notting Hill in which he keeps saying bumps-a-daisies wasn't written by Richard Curtis, it was just how he speaks. It was just an ad-lib, was it? Yes. Uh, right, OK, I'm going uh, to read some stuff now. Go ahead. OK. Uh, Josh in Chicago. Hello. Uh, as a recent convert to your church of wittertainment, I've made my way through the back catalogues of your podcast while being stuck at home with a nasty gastrointestinal virus. Oh, that sounds horrible. I've been I have been unable to eat a real meal for about a week now due to the pain that it causes my stomach. However, hearing Simon's running with Justin Bieber and the flappy hands rant for run for your wife is already making me feel better. Well, sorry, remind me, what was your running with Justin Bieber? Well, I, w I spent some time in the steam room oh, with him. I beg your pardon, it wasn't a run-in, it was that you witnessed him telling yeah. his, telling he, his he, minions to go and buy him a new sports car or something. Yeah, that's right, he was having a shouty session and then... He was having a mini-tanty. That's right, and then he continued his mini-tanty in the steam room where I pursued him with my kind of dogged journalistic hat on. And a towel. And a towel. <laughs> <laughs> and a journalistic hat. So he was hat stalked by Radio 2's Simon right. Mayo in a towel. Anyway, could I, says Josh in Chicago, continuing, in these times of hardship, get a... What's up? Oh, well, I haven't actually done one. Anyway, get a what's up, what's up, uh, and a feel from Simon, and a feel better Josh from Mark. And a feel from Simon. Feel better Josh from Mark in his best Danny Dyer voice. Not what you said. Feel better, yeah, feel better Josh. Oh! Okay. That was a bit all over the place, that was a bit... I'm sort of put off, really. You're put off by the fact there's cameramen in the room. Anne Zimmersheed in Seattle. Didn't, didn't she do the score for Interstellar? Just a quick note. In response to last week's podcast, I feel I must re Shh, no, never mind. refute Dr. I'm Kurt playing to the stalls today. Can I carry on? Well, if you if you respond when you know to these, 
Well, Hans Zimmer sheet, you were making some reference to Hans Zimmer, and you, it's not. It no, was it sort of, wasn't even worth it. It right. wasn't really worth. I was sort of saving you the embarrassment of pointing up a, a not very good. Right, I'm moving away from the microphone. Just let you get on with it. Just a quick note in response to last week's podcast. I feel I must refute Mark's guide to American pronunciation. Oh. I have been to 15 out of 50 of these United States mm-hmm. and have never heard anyone say triology. Though I haven't been to Tennessee, so that might explain it. Before you get cross, John Spink. Originating from the UK, but having lived in the US for 35 years, the majority spent working on the road. I have never heard anyone say triology instead of trilogy. Craig Tom from Louisville, Kentucky, one of my favourite places in the world, by the way. I've been, and I'd like to go and do a show there. I've been an American for all of my 55 years and have lived a majority of that time in Georgia and Kentucky. Mark is the first person I've ever heard say triology. There you go. So the okay. overwhelming right. vote, that's three votes. Yeah, what's yeah. crucially, none of those people are Elvis fans. None of those people hang out with Elvis. How do you Because if they were, they would have heard triology. That's how. Okay? I was in Clarksdale, right, with a. Where's that? Okay, let's. I was. Okay, I was in Sun Studios. Yes. Okay, so Clarksdale down the road. I was in. You know where Sun Studios is? Yeah, yeah. I've okay, never fine. Been there, but all right. So just imagine like a, a radius of about 100, 200 miles from Sun Studios. Okay. Yes. Right. Every Elvis fan I met, American trilogy. They know exactly what you're talking about. So. So it's just nonsense to say they don't say trilogy. No one says it. Fine. Can we have correspondence from an Elvis fan? who knows that that's how it's referred to. We it's can't referred just, to as the American triology. We can't just conjure it up, you know. OK, fine. If, this if is anyone's Elvis listening and they're an Elvis fan, I notice that the Elvis fans haven't written in. I notice that it's just linguists complaining. I'm not... Why would I make this up? Why would I make it up? Particularly since that's the song I want played at my funeral. Maybe you've misremembered. Yeah, I think that's unlikely. Just all I'm, my role is just to read out what Craig in Louisville uh, and John and Anne Zimmersheed, nothing to do with Hans Zimmer, have pointed out to me to pass on to you. Yeah, well, they're not Elvis fans. If they were, they'd know that American trilogy is a very common... Uh, I reckon Anne Zimmersheed's probably got half a dozen Elvis albums in there. I, I, then I, it's your witness, Your Honour. I wait to hear from them. Doug West... Uh, he's got nothing to do with any of this. I live in the UK, Manny, but regularly drive back and forth to Belgium to spend time with my lovely daughters who live there with their mum and the Witterworld accompanies me on my long and tiresome drive, helping while away the miles slash kilometres. Many's the time during car trips with the girls, I have forced them to listen to your podcast, pointing out the witty banter and referencing films that we're going to see. If I, have a, yeah, if I have a choice in the matter, and often this has generated a visceral response in the negative, oh, no, not again, do we have to listen to this rubbish? That, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah. You familiar with that? That's, yes, that's what happens in my house. Yes, you do, I inevitably respond, hoping that, like some medieval Japanese torture, it will eventually work its way into their brain. <laughs> Imagine my delight last week when my oldest daughter, Nadia, who's 15 and three quarters, once strapped in suitably for the journey back to Belgium after a week of hope with Dad, said, can we listen to that film thing with those two blokes? Well, says Doug, joy unbounded. I then proceeded to annoy the uh, living daylights out of them by completely unnecessarily pointing out every humorous nugget to them. How many humorous nuggets do you think there were in one whole show? About three. Nevertheless, we have at least one new convert to your church. Maybe we should create a teenage slump zone in the church. Do you think this would... Do you think... Would that be any good? Can we have a teenage slump zone for? Is that like messy church at the back of the? You know, when when the kids playing with the plasticine whilst the service is going on. Is that a thing? 
Messy church. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, okay, it's a bit like that. So teenage slump zone where teenagers, while listening to the programme, can slump and go on their phones. Mm. Not if they're going to go on their phones. Not? No. Phones off? No, phones off. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else you've got to do? Well, it's, just a, it's a big show. And I think what the podcast is going to have to do is going to have to pick up the slack because there's 23 movies out this week. Yeah, but we're doing probably eight just because, you know, time allows. I just want to mention Deborah in Melbourne. Hello, Deborah. Uh, Deborah Lister. I played that music to your dog. This is the. This is. The, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. Uh, you see, somebody posted a thing of their dog doing the same thing that your dog does. Frankenstein by Edgar Winter. Well, yeah. my ex dog. I'm not even going to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, just I, not. I played your Frankenstein music to my dog, who was asleep at the end of my bed. She opened her eyes, stared at my fruit name device, stared at me, and then went back to sleep. <laughs> the music sounded slightly tinny, so po- possibly this was why. However, a song that really did upset my animals was Hocus Pocus by Focus. Focus. Possibly because it's a rather silly song to try and uh, try and sing weird yodeling and bizarre, wibbly, wibbly, yibbity-type lyrics in the middle. My dog did not like this when I was singing it and was cocking her head to one side with a... Have you gone mad? Expression on her face. The cat just looked rather affronted and left the room. Maybe you could add it to the playlist, but actually it's already there. Mm. I don't know if you've checked. So there's some, somebody posted a picture of their dog apparently leaping around. Going, ima- going mad to the bit. Yeah, because you said that, that when that particular bit happens, that yeah. your dog ran round and round and round and round and round. Ex-dog, yeah. Yeah, at the time that your dog ran round and round and round, it, it was a dog... It wasn't. It was always a dog. It was, it was levitating dead. and spinning around. That's demonic possession. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. No, it's a dead dog now. No, I, 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 under, I do understand that that's happened now. But I, if you refer to every pet as an ex, I could take. I could take him to the pet cemetery. Very good. Spelt S E M. Well done. So, Very good. Yeah, and then he'd come back. Very good. Demonic. demonic yes, it would. Uh, look forward to seeing you on the cruise this year, says Deborah. I live in a beachside suburb of Melbourne, so the ship can actually drop anchor in the bay and send a tender to collect me from a small jetty. Deborah, consider it done. Uh, we'll do that. Are you ready? I've been ready since... Since Nixon... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doesn't work Regular. anymore, anyway. Here's the show. Can I get a proper chair? Because this chair really is just beyond terrible. What's wrong with your chair? Here's what's wrong with it. Watch. It's like a dentist's chair. I feel like somebody should be like, is it safe? Is it... I mean, it's it's completely wrong. Was that Marathon Man? What did you think? I don't know. I thought it was like a robot talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hal. Anyway, here we go. Here we go with the show. Here we go with the show. Here we go with the show. Here we go with the show now. You're going to find that hard without a helmet, aren't you? Dave. Hello, Dave. Couple of hours of movie reviews. That's what we're going to That's make clear. clear. Plus, you can get involved eight five zero five eight. You can tweet at Wittertainment. Uh, you can email the show, and also the live streamers uh, via the Five Live website will get the extra treat of not just Mark and I looking completely fabulous, but also two particularly young guys with cameras uh, who are not us. No, but they're here doing a thing. Uh, next week we might be able to tell you about the thing, but at the moment there's a moustache guy and beard guy, and they're behind us. Hello, moustache guy. It's more no, you have to more... say you have to say hello. hello Can I just yeah. say that's more goatee? Okay, he has he has he has he has, he has one on the uh, above the lip and one under the chin. That's okay. goatee. That's not moustache guy. That's goatee guy. Okay, he's our goatee guy. He's okay. <laughs> and, uh, and beardy boy. Can I call you that? You can. Okay, yeah. very good. Goatee guy, beardy boy. Well done. And and the worst thing is that is going to stick. 
Anyway, I'm just uh, just explaining it for the live streamers in case they're wondering what on earth is going on. Uh, so we're any going... more than they do in any, in any normal week. Kerry Mulligan's going to be here just after two thirty, and you're going to be able to watch that interview as well. Generic camera assistant, uh, just to keep up the camera theme, mm-hmm. has sent us this. I was unable to listen to last week's show live as I was doing my sporadic duty of camera assistant on a film production. Very good. Interested? Yes. I'm going to be generic and nondescript as to the film for reasons that will become clear soon. OK. Very, we- very quickly into the shoot, it became obvious that the director had not organised his thoughts, script <laughs> or screenplay, which led to numerous difficulties, <laughs> reshoots and exhaustingly long days. Some crew revolted, shouting at the director, phrases which cannot be broadcast, and they required much convincing to return to finish the production. Wow. This sounds like an unhappy show. Yes. A while into the shoot, however... I had had enough, but wanted to see this difficult production to the finish. To get my own slight bit of revenge, I took it upon myself to cover the director section of the clapperboard with a bit of tape that said, Jason Isaacs. (laughs) I got away without anyone noticing. However, I may get some questions once the editors get their hands on the last quarter of the footage. If Jason Isaacs is directing a film, feel free to pass on my details, as I have already technically slated for him. Fantastic. So there you go. That so. does tap into, you know, there's this famous thing that Terry Gilliam said. He said a movie in production is like a ship on the brink of mutiny. It sounds like they actually did have a mutiny. In this. And he said it is the job of the director to get the ship into port without loss of money or life. Some... If you can make art while you're doing it, good for you. But to be doing a movie with some crew revolting... But that's what, that's what I mean. It's exactly that. It's, it's, it's you know, the, the, the ship is on the brink of mutiny and it is the role of the director. I mean, there's a very famous story about um, Richard Stanley who directed uh, Dust Devil and, and uh, Hardware, which was two interesting uh, films, and then ended up helming this remake of The Island of Dr Moreau, uh, and after the second day, he was pretty much fired by Val Kilmer, who was one of the stars. It was Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, because Val Kilmer just didn't think that Richard Stanley was tough enough. And uh, they got in another director. But Richard Stanley wanted to see how badly the film was going to go in his absence. So he dressed himself as one of the characters from the island of Dr Moreau, Melting Dog Boy. And he went back on set and filed these diaries about, you know, being on set, Marlon Brando wearing an ice bucket on his head because nobody had the guts to tell him to take it off because... It was Marlon Brando. And apparently the last thing the director said to Val Kilmer after the last shoot was, and now get that off my set. So it was apparently a very unhappy shoot. The, re- the, the reason why I probably shouldn't have read that out is that, because normally it's just you and me here, yeah. but we've actually got two sort of crew in the studio because we've got go-to guy and we have Beardy Boy. And hmm. if we're really rubbish, they yeah. might shout things at us as they have on this on this film production. Yes. And that could be... Except neither you or I the director. Robin is effectively the director, so they could shout at him. That's far better, like we all do. Uh, now, here's the thing you might like from Amiga, uh, who says, I attach a little audio file I've been working on. I mean, this could go anywhere. Uh, and it, it takes its inspiration... If you listen to this before you're going to play it, this isn't... You have checked this. Yeah. Okay. It takes its inspiration from the popular Tumblr Kim Jong Un looking at things. <laughs> okay. Is that a thing? Apparently it's a thing. I've called it Simon Mayo not knowing things. A selection of all those moments when Simon, as the listener's guide through Mark's world, is left utterly baffled at the collection of words that have just issued onto the airwaves. Much love and thank you for being by far the best thing on the radio. Says Tom uh, Anamiga. Okay. So this is a collection. I mean, it, this could go on for many hours. Yes. Of all the things where you, you just throw understand. something at me and I go, no, I've got no idea. OK. So here we go. Here's Babel in a nutshell. You know, we're all a bit, aren't we? 
All about what? His previous meditations on Israel-Palestine relations include uh, Chronicle of a Disappearance and Divine Intervention, both of which I know you have seen, Simon. What's that? You, you ever see Lost Highway? Oh, don't know. <laughs> have you ever seen Altered States? Don't the Ken Russell so. film, yeah. No. Well, and what are their adaptations of, Simon? Round and Throne of Blood. Uh, I think it's Greece, isn't it? <laughs> Have you ever seen that Ernest Borgnine film, The Devil's Reign? No. Uh, ooh, uh, well, no. Have you seen Funny Game, Simon? Uh, I th- uh, uh, I How do you not it? know Toodles? Because I... you never seen Down by Law? No, I haven't. How many layers are there in Dante's Inferno? Is it seven? <sighs> <laughs> uh, well, what Jane Austen have you read? I can't... I don't think I've watched uh, any. Uh, uh, Les Amants du Pont Neuf, which was the... Do you remember Les Amants du Pont Neuf? I, rem- I, I understand nothing of what you've said in the last 30 seconds. Okay. If you want to know it's something weird about Bakelite, watch Savage Go... Or maybe not, but it's very... It's more than you'd want to know about Bakelite. What on earth did any of that mean? I agree with myself. <laughs> I absolutely agree with myself. I still don't understand what you're talking about. That's very good. I just imagine the hours that must have gone into... Trawling through There's the lots program. to choose from. There's <laughs> an awful lot to choose from. And there'll be more in the show. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Thank you uh, for that. Um, that was very good. Cliff Francis, I was uh, recently listening to your interview with Julianne Moore whilst taking my daily constitutional around the leafy West Village neighbourhood here in New York. So imagine my surprise as I turned the corner and came face to face with the lovely flame haired porcelain skinned actor, Oscar winner herself. Wow. I was tempted to say, Oi. Julianne, you'll never believe it. I'm listening to you right now talking to that Simon Mayo. But quickly, I thought the better of it and continued on my way. I just wondered if anyone else had experienced the quite discombobulating effect of a wittertainment-related synchronicity, a WRS. Some, I have been in queues uh, in the supermarket with people listening to us. Yes. And they go, oh, I'm listening to you. I know. And what do you say? I always go, are we any good? And they usually go, not really. Uh, what I say, I just said, oh, thanks very much indeed. Yes. Can you check out the Radio 2 podcast as well? That's what I actually Is said. there a Radio 2 podcast? Yeah, there are two. Is that very popular? There are two. Excellent. But we're doing this, you know, we're just doing this. And no, 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 but it's, you know, it's, it's in hands across the ocean. Anyway, if there is a W, anyone else has got a WRS, then I'd be very interested to hear. Just put one more before we do the, uh, the box office top ten this week. Um, do you remember last week we, we were talking about geeks, but spelt G33? Oh, yes, S, yes, yes, yeah. Which is yeah. a special geeky way of spelling Apparently. Well, there's a really terrible thing about to happen mm-hmm. as we get this from D. McArdle Booker. That's the D is the first name. McArdle Booker appears to be the second name. I'm going to be leaving law school as a graduate if all goes well in the next week. Congratulations. On May the 8th. And I've been having job interviews for lawyering-style jobs. Presumably that's just being a lawyer. <laughs> I've been surprised to be asked by more than one interviewer, what's your favourite trial movie? Okay. And I've been answering To Kill a Mockingbird, which is true, but based not so much on the admittedly high quality of that movie as on my having ve- seen very few other trial movies. It is clear that if I'm ever going to make it in this profession, I need a crash course in courtroom cinema. Having given subject matter-specific movie recommendation to the geeks, the G33 geeks, mm. would it be possible that you could pass on some suggestions for lawyers or even, and this is where Dee McArdle Booker spells lawyers, 74WY3RS, which kind of vaguely looks like lawyers if it were a car number plate, but on an email looks a bit dumb. Yes, I'm aware it's a terrible joke for radio. Anyway, so best trial 
movies. Well, I mean, Twelve Angry Men, although actually that's that's all deliberation. This and there's funnily enough, there is a very Twelve decent, Deliberating Men. Twelve Deliberating. Well, they're angry. Uh, uh, there is a William Friedkin remake of that. Um, and, and congratulations, we're getting William Friedkin in the program within the first uh, twelve minutes, which is actually really good and won uh, several awards. I mean, the problem with most courtroom movies, like if you look at, you know, The Judge recently or something like, you know, A Few Good Men, well, actually, A Few Good Men is military court, isn't it, is that they bear no relation to what actually being in a courtroom is like, which is an awful lot of people just mumbling and passing papers and then going up and conversing with the judge and then at the end of it somebody says it's all convened or, you know, whatever it is, and and, and they'll do do it out. It's all convened. It's all, what do you call it? You know, court adjourned. Adjourned. Yes. You see, that's why I'm not a lawyer or an L four seven eight three, whatever it's called. But I'd say Twelve Angry Men is the best, the best okay. one. Although it's not really a courtroom movie, but it kind of is. All right, Mayo at BBC.co.uk. If you can help D. McArdle Booker uh, finding another trial-based movie, box office top ten this week. Kerry Mulligan on the way. By the way, The Falling is at number ten. And. A number of people have got in touch to say, look, I'm struggling to find cinemas that are showing The Falling. And so we tweeted a link uh, to all the cinemas that were. So, you know, congratulations to it for getting in the top ten. I think it's wonderful. I think Carol Morley is a real uh, extraordinary talent. I mean, what the story is, is about uh, you know English school, uh, 1969. Uh, these girls start having these communal fainting fits. But are they faking or is it actually... Had something to do with you know a connection with a with a with a recent tragedy. I thought it was wonderful. I mean, it reminded me of Don't Look Now, and it reminded me of Wicker Man and Devils and Mother Joan of the Angels. And the soundtrack by Tracy Thorne was terrific. And I, it's really, really anybody. The, the the one thing I would say is it is proving a Marmite movie. It is uh, some people love it as much as I do. Some people are completely left cold by it, but that's fine. They're wrong. Joseph Coward on this went to see The Falling last Friday. I thought it was. Uh, like a film undergrad's end-of-year project. Uh-huh. Pre- pretentious, all over the place, incredibly hammerly acted. Instead, it should have been called The Falling Over, as someone hits the deck every two minutes. Even the teachers were joining in by the end. Very disappointing, although it was nice that Donovan's Voyage of the Moon... Can I just say, that thing out. about hammy acting, I think... Um one of the things that this was a comment made by Stuart Barr, uh, who is an online journalist for Verite magazine, and I think he was quite right that one of the things that performances have is an element of performance, which is probably one of the reasons why the film reminded me of the the jally of the you know sixties and nineteen seventies. Is it is a strangely theatrical performance. I, the performance I, I, has elements of performance. Yes, it's not okay. Fine. So um, you know, if somebody's performing in a, in a way that you just think that's a naturalistic performance, Ye- fine. Yes, yes. But there's also performance which is to do with performance. Now, since so much of the falling is that, are they actually fainting or are they performing fainting? Well, they're evidently. It's a mixture of both because what's happening is like a kind of rapture. They don't just sort of fall over like people fainting. They, it's a sort of strange, balletic, elegiac performance. And actually, I think that's what it is that made me connect it to those, you know, Italian movies of the 1960s and early 1970s. I don't I think the performances are terrific and I think they're very precise and they're doing exactly what they're meant to do. Thomas Hinton says really enjoyed the falling ripe with a variety of different imageries. It created a very real sense of confusion and an erratic need to find out what's going on. Really well executed, whilst the film's attempt to keep you in a state of despair can often make it seem a bit messy in its direction. For me, I was fully invested. Tim Abrams, The Falling is sensational. Williams is mesmerising in the lead role. You just can't take your eyes off her. Pugh delivers an excellent silver screen debut as a maturing young woman dealing with the tension between childhood friendships and adult 
relationships. Uh, Brian in Manchester, I have to disagree with Mark, much as I respect his opinion. I found the film a chore to sit through. I was constantly looking at my watch, yawning through this very tedious film, rubbish ending. Though the acting was good and it had hints of The Wicker Man and other such films, I have to say it was a relief when the end credits arrived. Well, as I said, it, it is clearly proving divisive. Um, there you go. But, I, you know, I, I love it. I just love it. You just love it? I just love it, yeah. And it was your movie of the week last week? It was. Uh, the Duff is at number nine. And the question was, is being a Duff actually even a thing? And loads of people... Said it was a thing. Yeah, Remind then, me what it stands for. Uh, designated Ugly Fat Friend. And when I said... Yes, and you made exactly that face. It just like an offensive title. Yes, but when, you said, when I said it before, you, said you made exactly that face. Well, actually, the whole point about the film is it's, it's on the side of its heroine who is the duff it's not a it's not a great film but it's certainly not a bad film it wants to be mean girls very few things are but i thought it was kind of actually you know sympathetic and oddly engaging in a in a very very broadly mainstream i still don't believe in this duff thing incidentally but people have sent us loads and loads of uh, so even though people have said that it is a i thing, still don't, you don't believe you don't it. quite believe yeah it but that's like you know it's like people who don't believe that, that they went to the moon you know even though everyone went to the moon there are still people who go yeah no they didn't i mean i believe for ages that elvis had faked his own death i know I've come to terms with that now. You really? I have. So Elvis is, is actually... Don't make me say it out loud, but... He's dead. How long did you think he wasn't dead for? A while. How many years? I'm not talking to you anymore. Why, why did you... Just, I'm, just I'm, move I'm, on. I'm now genuinely interested. Why, why would he fake his own death? Because, frankly, if you've read Gail Brewer-Giorgio's Is Elvis Alive? I haven't. OK, well, then... And then I have nothing what, else. What's the conclusion of that book? Yes. And he was wrong? She. She was wrong. Yes. <laughs> this is good stuff. Is. Never mind there's the another, movies. There's another brilliant one. Um, there's a book, uh, well, you talked about it before, called, uh, called Who Killed John Lennon? Very, very short book. Yes. I think that's already been sorted out by the American judicial system. Uh, OK, so Child 44, even, even though this is get not, hard not as interesting. One, yeah, well, Get Hard's at number eight. No, no, but I haven't seen Child 44 and I have seen Get Hard. Okay, well, right. Gerhard is horrible and evil and bad and terrible. Don't go see it. Child 44, Elizabeth Barnston. I nearly didn't bother going to see Child 44 after James King described it as boring, but I'm so glad I did. I love the way the film conveyed the grimness of Soviet life and the way the horror of the serial killer was less frightening than the threat of what the authorities could do to anyone who dared to step out of line. As for Tom Hardy's Russian accent, normally I would agree that as the characters are all Russian speaking Russian, they should not have accents, but somehow it worked here. Bearing this in mind... I then tried to replay a line in my head in an ordinary English accent, but it just didn't feel right for Child 44. SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water, number six. Genuinely bizarre and strange. Works less well when they come out of the water, but all the underwater stuff is really funny, and I laughed all the way through. And actually what you want when you're with that kind of movie is you want something that you can take the younger viewers who love SpongeBob from the TV, and you know they'll, they'll enjoy it, but you want to know that there's stuff there that you'll enjoy as well. And frankly, I got more laughs per minute than most of the mainstream comedies. It's just genuinely strange and bizarre, and the bit with the, the dolphin in space with the laser beam on its head was just terrific. Uh, Woman in Gold's at number five. No, no, because that was, again, that was the week I was off. But Zach, uh, age 17 in Watford, has been to see it. I went to see Woman in Gold last night with my mum on, uh, on my suggestion. We were by far the youngest of the eight people in the auditorium, which raised my fears that this might not be the film for us. However, the fears were quashed within the first 20 minutes. We both loved the film. The ever-excellent Helen Mirren's portrayal of the submers of subversive... Submersive. Subversive Maria was engaging and believable. The sequences in 1938 Austria were suitably shocking and tense, and the washed-out colour palette of these scenes added to the heavy 
atmosphere. Yes, it was sentimental towards the end, but by that time the film had earned it, and at no point did it seem contrived to tug at the audience's heartstrings. My daughter went to see it and liked it very much. Uh, Home is at number four. I'm I'm kind of genuinely surprised by how well Home has done, considering that it's actually a pretty bland uh, rendering of a story which could have been done, I think, you know, much more excitingly. Uh, I and I I kind of dismissed it as you know it'll come and go, but it has held on in there. It may well be that it's done as well as it has because there, you know, the market there isn't. A, if you've got a you know particular age bracket, you want to go to the cinema. It's the one that's on everywhere. But I, I am genuinely surprised that a film which is as bland and kind of unimaginative as Home is has done as well as it has. So it's clearly me that's out of step. I'd be interested. In, have you got any emails from anybody who really loves it? Well, we have had. We've had a couple. Not really loves it. We've had a couple of from people who've enjoyed it, but you know. But uh, but everyone is writing about Avengers: Age of Ultron. Fine, fine, fine. Which, okay, is, fine. which is what oh, we we'll moved towards that. Okay, fine. Uh, Cinderella's in number three. Well, it was terrific. Nice. This is my favourite email, actually, so far. Henrik Hansen in Edenbridge in Kent Mm -hmm. on the subject of Fast and Furious 7, which is this week's number two. Mm. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you back. Whilst reviewing Fast and Furious 7, Mark asked how the makers of the film could possibly follow it. I've thought about it long and hard, and I think I've cracked it. You make Fast and Furious 8. And, he adds, here's the killer, if they don't call it Fast and Furiate, (laughs) then they're missing a trick. Glad I could be of assistance. And somebody else has pointed out that they have to do at least another three more so that they can get to Fast and Fur 10 us. Is that for lawyers and geeks? F U R 1 O U S. And I, you know, you already know that that's going to happen. So Fast and Furious 7 is at number two. And the box office, number one, as we knew it would be, Avengers Age of Ultron, is probably going to sit there for a while. Well, I mean, I think you and I both felt the same way about this that it's. I mean, Joss Whedon is the most intelligent of uh, the, the sort of franchise helmsman, although actually, of course, you know, J.J. Abrams... I mean, J.J. Abrams is about the Star Wars movie and for the first time I'm excited for Agent and Ages. Um, what excited? I liked, Are you excited? I am. I'm genuinely excited. I found myself doing the thing which I've never done before, which was when the new Star Wars trailer came on. The, I actually went and looked looked it up. I mean, like, I could care about Star Wars beforehand, and now suddenly, why? Why? Because it's J.J. Abrams, and now suddenly I'm I'm excited about it. But in the case of Avengers Age of Ultron, on the positive side, you know, it, Joss Whedon is good at doing those characters and those interpersonal relationships between them, and all the best stuff is them having conversations and the, and the jokes, which work well. Uh, I think the special effects are rather unspecial, but then I saw it again over the weekend in 2D. So when I saw it at the preview screening, it was, uh, it was in 3D, and I thought some of the, the special effects sequence seemed a bit computer gamey, much less so in 2D. I really, really can recommend, if you get a chance to see it in 2D, the 2D is better than 3D. Uh, the problem is that there's too many characters vying for space on what is a limited stage, and consequently you do get an awful lot of cross-cutting between, you know, even in the action sequences, these people are doing this thing, these people are doing this thing, these people are doing this thing, but it's fun, it's intelligent, I'd rather see Whedon do this than anybody else, and, uh, and it, you know, it, it actually has a beating heart as opposed to just being some horrible franchise product. Here's Emily Colley, who has this to say. As a huge comic movie fan, I was eager to check out the latest Avengers instalment and I'm very glad to say did not disappoint. The character development was perfect. And with each movie, we begin to see more personality from each character. This film saw much more of the backstory of Hawkeye and Black Widow, something which has been sorely missing from the previous films. Uh, on that note, I believe a Black Widow-Hawkeye uh, origin film is well overdue. 
you. Overall, I really enjoyed this instalment, maybe not as much as the first, but I would happily see it again uh, and again. Joel Fantini, age 15, in New South Wales. In 140 minutes, David Lynch managed to perfect cinema with his masterpiece, Mulholland Drive. In 140 minutes, Joss Whedon manages to put Tab A into slot B with The Avengers Age of Ultron. An excruciating barrage of unfunny one-liners, mind-numbing visual effect sequences and dramatically inert storytelling. The Avengers 2 is a passionless, dreary affair. And despite a strong vocal performance from James Spader, a brief but memorable turn from Julie Delpy and a passingly buoyant opening sequence... It's one of the most arduous cinematic experiences of the last two years. That's from Joel, age 15. Boom. Well, OK. No, I mean, it, I... Hmm, OK. Uh, I don't think 15. it is... 15. Yeah. 15. Why are you saying that? Like, Sounds like he's 35. No, I know. I mean, we already know that the, you know, the, the, the generation, you know, behind us are... Uh, already ahead Are of already us. ahead of us by quite some distance, yeah. I mean, I'm very, very aware of that, and we are in the, the Dilight Twinus... Dilight Twinosaur, Twilight. That's a movie. And there we go. That is Dilight Twinosaur. Dilight Twinosaur is there. <laughs> um, yeah, Pixar on the phone. <laughs> they, I think it's not soulless. I think it's not tab A into slot B. I think you're underestimating how complicated it is for Joss Whedon to fight the huge, great big corporate franchise of the Marvel characters and get something you know, personal out of them. I think tab A into slot B would be Transformers 4. I think you have to appreciate that what Whedon is doing is is making the best of that situation. I am very conscious of the fact that when you watch those movies, you get a sense of him wrestling this huge corporate thing. You know, he has to get these characters in the right position for the next instalment. He has to tick certain boxes. But I think he does that in a way which is genuinely graceful. Um, but and it was, dyke tickle. And apparently so. It's a dyke tick stuff. But it was interesting that when he came on the programme, he came on because he had just, in, in between making these sort of huge blockbuster hits, he'd made a black and white Shakespearean adaptation. Remember this? Simon, I'm talking to you. Mm, no. You genuinely... Yes, I do remember it. OK, Because I watched it. Yes, I know. Yeah. That's I was fine. I was kind of asking rhetorically. But I'm just I, concentrating on all the other things that I have to think about, like uh, news and sport okay. coming up, like Kerry Mulligan on the way. Okay, so for so, so, things. But yes, so in yes, summary, I, I don't think it's just tab A into slot B. I think that's unfair. Thank you. And yes, I do remember the Shakespeare. Thank you. And it was good. Good. Uh, just one more from Adam Ferguson, because apparently uh, this movie is being referred to as AAOU, just as I had, you know, shorthand. Okay. AAOU That's not much shorter than saying Avengers Age of Ultron. Isn't just Valtastic, it's also rather fantastic, says Adam. The first third is totally blistering and full of that delightful Marvel wit we've become accustomed to, but it's when the piece shifts focus towards the characters that it really thrives. Chris Evans continues to steal the show as Captain America, the best Avenger, and Elizabeth Olsen is a strong addition to the cast. There's a lot going on, shocking, I know, which leaves the film a tad underfed at times. Having said that, $300 million superhero blockbuster extravaganza, Age of Ultron, ticks many boxes. Can I, can I ask an Age of Ultron question very quickly? You, is this a rhetorical question? No, it's a question to the audience. Yes. Okay? Is it just me... Or in the sequence... This is like the opening letter to the Daily Telegraph. Is, is, it, just ju is it just... No, seriously. Yeah. I've now seen the film twice. The first time I saw something went past almost subliminally. And I thought, hang on, did I just see that? I saw it again, 2D. And, at second, and I thought, hang on, did I just see that? Is it just me? Or what? did anybody else see in the moment in which there's the great upload of data, there's, you know, at the birth of the, of the Nemesis character, in which suddenly we get all this access to all the world's information and we see this sort of flashback of history... 
Is it just you? Hang on. I'm sure there is an image of Pazuzu from The Exorcist in there. It's really... I'm sorry, don't do that. It's really fleeting. I've seen it twice now. Did anybody else see it? It it looks like there is a statue of the Assyrian demon of the southwest wind from The Exorcist in there, and it looks like a a joke. Did anyone else see it? I'm sure there is, Mark. No, I don't want you to say that because in that patronising way, I want somebody out there in the world to say, yes, Mark, I saw it too. Okay, if you'd like to email and say, yes, Mark, I saw it too, it's mail at bbc.co.uk. But very interesting. So you maybe you need, just need to see it. It's really fast. I mean, if you get it on the DVD, you know, DVD or Blu-ray, then it will be. But at the moment, I just, it, and it is a fraction of a second, frame within frame, and I'm sure I saw it. Eight, Believe five, zero, me, five, eight. I noticed this Thank stuff. you very much, Dee. Just trying to do some voice talent casting for our new animation of Daylight Twinosaur. <laughs> Copyright, Mark. Um, I think John Goodman... And Amy Adams, I'm casting. That's it. I mean, that's the voice talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's that's going to work, isn't it? Would that be okay? Very good. Thank you for all the best uh, trial movie suggestions. This is for our lawyer who who keeps on being asked it and wants a job very quickly. Stanley Kramer's Judgment at Nuremberg. Uh, Chrissy P. Kieran in Belfast is suggesting Primal Fear. Oh yeah. Okay. Also, have to get. That's got the most fantastic uh, uh, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Good. Also, I've realised that anything you say about any of these things is a plot spoiler, so... But they're they're ancient. Well, as we know, there are... There comes a time. There comes a time. Also, have to give uh, a name for a shout for uh, In the Name of the Father, although not totally a a trial, it does contain quite a bit of... Well, yes, and there is the thing at the trial. uh, Again, is that going to be a plot spoiler? No, everybody knows how that... The verdict with Paul Newman. Thank you, Mark, for that. Uh, The Accused, starring Jodie Foster, is Andy Goldsmith's suggestion. Uh, my favourite court-based film is Inherit the Wind. Spencer Tracy's fantastic. Also, like The Runaway Jury. That's uh, from Zoe. Uh, Patrick Langridge, honourable mention t- for A Time to Kill, starring Matthew McConaughey, Sandra Bullock, Kevin Spacey and Samuel L. Jackson. Can we have Miracle on 34th Street? And how about, says Steve, in the M4 Was that, traffic... Yes, we can have that. Wait. Steve, in compulsory M4 traffic jam, how about Miracle on 34th Street? Because that's fantastic. Did it... Honestly, that was completely coincidental. Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I had I, no. It was entertainment-induced synchronicity? That's what that was. Very good. That is uh, actually that's the that's the one to go for because a court case, which is basically somebody attempting to prove legally that they are Father Christmas, is a brilliant idea. And an email which says, "Hi, gents, Alan Davis here." Whether well, it's that Alan Davis could be anyway. My cousin Vinny is my favourite courtroom thing. So we've added them to the list. Hopefully our lawyer will uh, will take some of those. So Alfie Saxby has tweeted to say, I'm so happy someone else saw that too. It wasn't just my eyes playing tricks on me. So at least one other person has seen the Pazuzu statue in Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm-hmm. And Edward in Kent, I have been eagerly awaiting the release of Far From the Madding Crowd. Not least because the novel is one of my favourite pieces of literature by one of my favourite authors. And this new film stars one of my favourite actresses working today, Kerry Mulligan. I very much like the 1967 John Schlesinger adaptation with Julie Christie, Alan Bates, Peter Finch and Terrestam. Hoping that this new version will not disappoint. He's looking forward to Mark's review. Mark's review will be on the way. First of all, a chat with your favourite actress working today. So here's the scene. Oh, by the way, if you go onto our YouTube channel, just if you're in front of a computer or if you have access to this, hmm. if you go to the uh, Kermit Amo YouTube channel, you can actually watch this interview go out at the same time. Okay? Yes. Do you think you could cope with that? I, I, I'm, I'm here in the room with you, but, but I can't okay, see I'll it tell because... you, okay, assuming you've okay. got, it, got it up, I'm going to tell you when to press I'll play. try and do it. Okay, so uh, here's the scene. It's very, very early on uh, in the movie. Uh, Gabriel Oak has just paid, uh, is just paying a visit to Bathsheba, and he's brought a lamb with him, of course. Bathsheba. Hey, Bathsheba. Well, we can have that conversation in just a moment. Here we go. This 
Bathsheba Everdeen. I brought you a lamb. Oh. Thank you, Mr. Oak. He's such a dear thing. He's come too soon and won't last the winter, so I thought you'd like to rear it instead. Thank you, that's very kind. We'll make some tea. The lamb is not why I came. Go on. <laughs> well, Miss Everdeen, I wanted to ask. Would you like to marry me? And that was a clip from Far From The Madding Crowd. I'm delighted to say Kerry Mulligan joins us. Kerry, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you very much indeed uh, for coming in. Uh, so we're about 20 seconds into the movie uh-huh. and my jaw drops for the first time. Oh, why? Well, I studied Far From The Madding Crowd uh-huh. when I was at school and I had compl- and I knew that your character was Bathsheba. Or was it Bathsheba? How we-, we said Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Just to be difficult. But I had completely and totally forgotten that she's Bathsheba Everdeen. Yes. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was like a statement right at the beginning to younger viewers. Yeah. That that there's something about this woman. Yeah. I just did not. I had, you know, the Katniss Everdeen to me, that's a great character. But Bathsheba Everdeen, what an extraordinary name for a role. Yeah, it is an amazing name. Had you ever played? Do you know whether there was ever any connection? Was it a deliberate. Katniss Everdeen, let's place her and let's put her next to Bathsheba. I think, yeah, I think the author was, in, but the oh, I can't remember the name of the author of The Hunger Games, but she was inspired by um, that character. So I think, yeah, she nicked it. Well, great. okay, so explain um, your Bathsheba. We still sound strange because she's slightly different to the Thomas Hardy Bathsheba, and I think she's slightly different to the Julie Christie version. Yeah, I mean, haven't seen the Julie Christie version, so which is a good thing because. Um, Whenever I've done a couple of adaptations where they've been very famous, iconic adaptations yeah. done before, and I think it's sort of dodgy territory if you see the original version because they're so brilliant and you know it's quite difficult not to see you know steal things from them. Um, I guess I mean I'd never read Madden Crowd. I didn't do it at school. I'd read Tess and um, Mayor of Casterbridge and never picked up Madden Crowd. So I came to it um, just for the film for the first time, completely with no real idea about the story apart from that it was set in the country. Um, so I sort of felt like I, it was my my Bathsheba from my reading of it. Um, and uh, I think what Thomas, the director, Thomas Winterberg, did was make her um, empathetic. I think when you read the book, you root for her in a way. And I think, but I think sometimes a lot of her behaviour is so difficult. And um, your version is slightly nicer. Yeah, I think. I think so. But I think I think it's sort of, you know, the feeling that you get when you read a book, the, the the point of an adaptation is to make an audience member watching the film have that feeling that they get when they read the book. And that doesn't mean necessarily putting things exactly or words or dialogue exactly from the page onto the screen because it's a different feeling, it's a different sensation that you get from reading to as you do as a viewer. So I think she's more empathetic on in our version. Um, so that the audience is sort of behind her story more, in a way. Did you have any reservations at all about doing a, getting into costume again, doing a period drama? I did, yeah, I did. I sort of, you know, I did a lot of that kind of stuff when I was first starting out, and I did lots of Austin and Dickens. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was know, very good. Thanks. <laughs> it was sort of lots of, you know, it was like Miss Marple and all the rites of passage that you do as a British actress. And um, it was great. And then when I started sort of doing a bit more work, I was very conscious of not getting pigeonholed as a British actress and that, that, you know, that would separate me from being able to play lots of different things. So I kind of stayed away from it for a while and then 
Um, and then this came along, and it was Thomas Vinterberg directing it, and I was just such a huge fan of his film. So, um, and then so I what, the what was it? What was it about him that made you think, okay, I'm going to put the costume on? Well, I'd seen Festin a long time ago, and you know, Festin's such an extraordinary film. But um, it was really when I saw The Hunt, um, which was not long before this whole thing sort of came together, that um, it's such an incredible film. It was so honest and and so beautifully shot and um, and kind of the most gripping film I'd watched in such a long time and I came out and couldn't talk for about half an hour. Um, and so it was it was the the idea of working with someone who wasn't from England, who wasn't brought up with this sort of Victorian British literature, who was an outsider, who could have a different perspective on it and bring something new to it so that it wouldn't feel like a sort of typical costume drama. Yeah. And um, I wonder if... Uh... One, I, mean, I think people will, will have sort of had a little gasp when you said that you hadn't seen the Judy Christie movie just because yeah. it's it's such an iconic yeah. film. Yeah. Have, you haven't seen it since? You I made... haven't seen it, no. I will, though. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's funny. I'd just never seen it. I'd never seen the Mia Farrow version of Gatsby just by chance. It was just a film that I'd never kind of seen. Um, but it's just so close to home when you yeah. feel, I remember years ago I, didn't, uh, I did a stage production of The Seagull and... And I was quite happy doing it. And then about three weeks in, I watched a film version with Vanessa Redgrave playing the character that I was playing. And she was so astonishing that I subconsciously tried to copy her for about a week afterwards. And it just, it was so weird because I was trying to be Vanessa Redgrave playing this part. Um, and I think that would be the case. Julie Christie's an incredible actress and, and that performance is so lauded and loved. And I just would feel like subconsciously I would try and take things from it. And that's not probably helpful for our version. I wonder, I think one of the reasons why the film works is that, um, and David Nichols did the, uh, did the script, is that your Bathsheba is still, I st I'm still thinking Bathsheba, but I'm saying Bathsheba. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's clearly 19th century Dorset, but yeah. you still feel contemporary, but not too contemporary. You know, yeah. it's not as though you've been beamed in from 2015. It just so happens that you're wearing 19th century gear. So that's a very interesting balance to try and strike, which I think is one of the reasons why the movie works. Yeah, I think David did that brilliantly. Um, you know, there are direct, there are lines directly from the book that work beautifully, and then there are passages or scenes that have been reworked in a way to make them slightly more accessible. I think the main, you never want to alienate your audience, and so if you soften things or relax things in a way to make them feel more accessible, then that's great. And it was also done in the style of a film. I mean... The costumes don't feel like actors wearing outfits. It looks like people wearing their real clothes, and um, and the way that it's shot feels handheld and feels sort of present. And and the year is interesting because it's been slight. Is it? I think Thomas Hardy wrote in wrote it for eighteen fifty seven, but you've moved it slightly more modern. Uh, I think to, only a couple of yeah, maybe a the eighteen eighties. Yeah, yeah. Is there a re is there a? I think a it was a, a mainly a costume decision, really, a style, a look, really, to make it feel. Less, um, yeah, less stayed and less sort of buttoned up. Stayed and buttoned up is the cue to talk about Michael Sheen, whose, <laughs> whose Farmer Boldwood is just fantastic every time he comes on the screen. You go, go Michael. I mean, I he's, he's got that, hasn't he? I mean, yeah. he's, he's fantastic. He's extraordinary. And, you know, that's Boldwood is such an amazing character. But he also, you know, we've taken the film, the, this enormously dense book and compressed it to to our feature film so there's he doesn't have an enormous amount of time on screen i mean no. you know he's a big player but um he's taken this incredibly complex character and, and managed to convey the entire story in a limited number of scenes and he's so heartbreaking in it. and you have a duet together you sing, you're singing again <laughs> uh, in a movie and he and as he stands up and his voice is clearly fabulous yeah. everyone else is thinking is there nothing this man can't do i know 
And getting to sing a duet with a Welshman, my mother was thrilled because I'm half Welsh and she's she thinks Michael Sheen's the best, as and I do. But what um, is, And what is it about if you're proposed to, you have to have a piano? Uh, <laughs> and so, a cucumber garden. Because Gabriel Oak, when he, uh, when he uh, proposes very, very early on, says, you know, maybe we could afford a piano. And mm. then when Boldwood proposes, he says, you can have a piano. And yeah. everyone's thinking, what's the big deal I with have a piano? piano? Yeah, there's this little list of things, these promises, this sort of dowry that you get given. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Boldwood, I think that all of the stuff with Boldwood, he has an amazing, Michael's so, he's got such an open face. He's got such an amazing way of expressing complete heartbreak to sort of comedy in a way. It's sort of sweet and yeah, when funny. Yeah, when he does his line about the grief that he's in because you've turned him down. Yeah. Everyone is, everyone's with him there. Yeah. How can you? No, I know, I know, I know. Uh, Meryl Streep was on the show uh, just very recently talking oh, really? about Into the Woods. Uh, and And she was fabulous. In fact, Mark was thinking that I'd fallen in love with Meryl Streep. Anyway, that's, that's <laughs> not true. We just got on very well. But as soon as I mentioned Suffragette, her face lit up again. You know, she was lit up talking about Into the Woods, but she was really lit up about talking about yeah. Suffragette. What can you tell us about that? Cause yeah, we're all there. really excited about it. Um, well, it's, it's a, our story is basically based on all true events, and it's, we're sort of part of a, a fictional set of... Uh, I play a fictional character, but it's set about a group of uh, women in Bethnal Green... Um, in 1912, who became involved, who were a militant group of suffragettes. So my character starts off pretty apathetic, not really interested in the women's rights movement, a laundry worker. Um, and through the, the girls that she works with in the local area, she becomes sort of embroiled in the whole suffragette movement and then herself becomes a political animal. And these real-life characters weave through the story, like Emmeline Pankhurst, who Meryl plays, um, and Emily Wilding-Davison. So the story culminates in the death of Emily Wilding Davidson at the King's Derby in 1913. It's an extraordinary story. It seems amazing that it's taken so long. I mean, there have been other votes, but for it to well, have this has, kind I of mean, treatment. That, yeah, really, for this sort of, you know, and I think so much of my understanding was naively with this sort of muted version of the history of what women went through. And actually when this is the first time people have really, in not a documentary style, made a story about what women really went through um, in that time and what the militant suffragettes really did and the extremes that they went to and how much they risked and saf- sacrificed. Are there better roles for women? Is It's a constant subject which comes up uh, on, a, on, a reg- on a regular basis. Uh, is, is Hollywood, is the movie industry adapting at all? Are there better roles? Is, are there the, the roles as deep and profound as you would like them to be? No, definitely. I mean, not, not, no, I don't think, I think largely um, not. But I don't know if there might, there's an upswing. I mean, there's certainly an audience that are sort of looking to see strong female characters on screen. You can see from the reaction to a film like Blue Jasmine how much people want to see a really complex and not necessarily likeable character, but someone who's just really interesting and a real extraordinary female character on screen. There's a real hunger for that, but it hasn't really caught up yet. Um, despite the fact that someone like Jennifer Lawrence can make more money for a yes. film studio than anyone else on the planet, you know, it's sort of we're still a little bit behind. But her, you know, and her performances are regularly fantastic. Yeah. But you, particularly with these two movies um, put together, Suffragette, which I haven't seen, but far from the Man in Crowd, which obviously have, you are being talked about in terms of almost like a feminist icon. Are you happy with that? I think you know, I, I'm so I was so lucky for these two projects to come along. Um, and to get to work on both of them. I feel really privileged to be part of Suffragette because I do think it's an extraordinary story and amazing that it's never been told. And I think, you know, it's a great year for this story to get told. 
and so long overdue. But um, yeah, these these amazingly strong female characters just come up very rarely, and so to get to play both of them has been um, has been brilliant. And I do want to represent strong women on screen, and I do think it's important for um, young girls to get inspired by watching you know women making decisions for themselves and being tough so what do we see you in after so after so i know we're heading quite a long way into the future yeah after suffragette what's next for you well at the moment i'm on broadway yes, so with bill Knight. Off. yeah yeah with bill so um i've been given a week off to come back to talk about madden crowd and then so i go back on sunday and do another eight weeks of that and then i don't know really how's how broadway it's great it's really fun we did it last year in London and it was great. And, you know, we didn't know how a New York audience would react to it because it's a quite British play, but it's gone really well so far. And he, he was on the show f- uh, a few months ago now talking about Pride, but oh, what, yeah. a, what a national treasure. Yeah, he is. He's the best. Uh, we really appreciate you coming in, Kerry. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Kerry Mulligan uh, spoke to me a couple of days ago and uh, a little technological triumph in the studio as Mark managed to get the uh, <laughs> nearly the pictures actually in sync with the sound because uh, that was a filmed interview and you can see it uh, on our YouTube channel. Yeah, it looks terrific. And it'll be part of the Five Live website at some stage when Tab A has actually been put into yeah. uh, slot B. So, look, well, Ed, so we've got lots of correspondence, but you give us some opening thoughts. There we do some news and sport travel. Where yeah, so we'll talk place. for a couple of minutes and then let them pick up off the news. I think the first thing to say is picking up off the back of your discussion and... You know, talking about uh, feminism, you know, I think that one of the things that uh, David Nichols, who I think has done a very good job with the screenplay, does is he does play up the, uh, the, the, the the feminism which is inherent in the story anyway. Because essentially, the story is of somebody who is in an oddly independent position that she's inherited this farm, and yet uh, she's also torn between three suitors. You know, Gabriel Oak, the sturdy one, uh, Boldwood, who's you know got wealth and brilliantly played by Michael Sheen, who looks awkward and ill at ease and really, really sort of uncomfortable. And then uh, and then Sergeant Troy, the caddish, rakish, wouldn't trust him as far as Absolutely you could... Absolutely don't go anywhere near him ever. And yet, actually, what the story manages to be about is about her independence. I mean, there are a couple of moments when this is explicitly sort of said in which she talks about the fact that she's too independent for marriage when she's having that discussion in which she's asked to explain her feelings. Uh, this is with, in which she's seen with Mark Sheen. She says it's very hard to explain what you feel in a language which is designed by men to express their feelings. So there are many moments in it in which the, these elements, which are all in the text, are sort of brought to the fore. And I think when you were talking about how modern it feels, it's absolutely right, because you can see that story now. Now, and all that it has to say about gender roles, all that it has to say about you know her role as an independent woman, somebody finding her own way, somebody who doesn't just want to sort of conform to, is all in there. And that's actually what makes it modern now. And that's also, oddly enough, what made it modern in the 1967 Schlesinger version, which we shall talk about a little bit more because it's impossible not to compare the two. It was interesting that she, she said she hadn't seen it. And, of course, as far as Julie Christie's concerned, that performance now is considered iconic. At the time, it was very roughly received. People thought that Julie Christie was, and this is the irony of it, was too modern. They thought that Julie Christie was too much sort of, you know, a hip-happening person of the moment. How can Schlesinger cast her in something which is a period drama? So I think one of the, the strengths of this new version, one of the things that I like about it very much, and it does come down to, firstly, the fact that Kerry Mulligan you know, can, can portray all those sort of conflicting things. But secondly, the, the screenplay has done a very good job of taking that tack of saying this is really the centre of the story. The centre of the story is to do with her quest for independence around which the romance is circled, but they never usurp that central position. More to say after that. Yeah, and she still hasn't seen the Judy Christie version, which I guess maybe that's the the wise thing to do if you're about to 
Well, as she said about, you know, you see Vanessa Redgrave doing something and then suddenly you think, I can't move because someone else has done it. Uh, we'll get to your emails and texts and thoughts on Far From The Manning Crowd and the other stuff. Mail at bbc.co.uk 85058. You can watch on the live stream, added treat, two rather attractive cameramen uh, who are behind <laughs> us because we're doing a thing. And hopefully we can tell you more about the thing next week, but maybe we can't, but maybe no. we can. But Always good to be doing a thing, though. By the way, uh, Alan Davis. Hello, Alan. It was. It turned out to be the Alan Davis. It actually is the Alan Davis. Well, it's who, terrific who, that he's listening. My Cousin Vinny uh, is his favourite courtroom thing. And My Cousin oh, Vinny was, one of, uh, was, was the, the source of one of the great Oscars uproars. Anyway, let's not go there now. No, let's yeah. not. Uh, Dara O'Brien, we should say hello to Dara, because he joined in on... He was uh, Last week we were talking about the word dyke-tick. Yes, which neither, neither you nor I had heard of. And um, it was in an email, and 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 actually, I'll I'll confess that when we first looked at it, we thought it was a typo, and then uh, we said, "No, what does it mean?" And a bunch of people wrote in to say that what it actually means. It, essentially, it means that something is that a word is referencing something else due to the context in which it's used. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 some, something like that. And Dara O'Brien tweeted to say. How ironic that you lot, who spend your whole time saying hello to Jason Isaacs, which doesn't mean anything other than out of context, didn't know what the meaning of the word dyked it was. And I tweeted him back saying, I'm really sorry, I feel really embarrassed that I don't know. And he did then admit that he didn't, hadn't heard of it either. And Dara is one of those people with brain He's, the size yeah, of a planet. Really, he hasn't heard of it. He hasn't I heard feel. of it, and nobody has. Yeah, really. Just Lord Stephen Fry, I'm sure he had heard of it. And speaking of people that we'd like to say hello to, because we've already said hello to Michael Sheen, just where we said how great he is, mm-hmm. and we've made reference to Jason uh, and so on. Did you know says this text, that Dave Swarbrick, ex of Fairport Convention, mm-hmm. was in Schlesinger's Far From The Madding Crowd. I didn't. He's a, f- he's a fiddle player at the, you know... Well, that would make perfect sense. Of course, that would make perfect sense. It absolutely would. Uh, Catherine, uh, in London, grade 7 piano, St John Ambulance, first aider, dear Dylight and Twinosaur. Very good. It's there. Mm. It's, it's going to happen. I must confess to being a very short-term listener, only since the beginning of last year, but your three-week absence a couple of weeks ago left me in no doubt as to my complete addiction to the BBC's flagship film programme, which left me desperately listening to previous podcasts on repeat and hugely relieved when you returned last week. I'm currently suffering from the most disgusting case of tonsillitis I've had for a oh, while. Oh, that's really horrible. Which I is putting really sympathise to all my bank holiday plans. The one upside is, of course, that... Being in bed rather than at the office for the first time, I'm able to watch the live stream and what a treat. And particularly because you have our goatee guy and beardy boy uh, as extra kind of candy. Uh, if you give up, what's up to my friend Matthew Kreber, who introduced me to the show, that would put a smile on my sickly face. Catherine, get well soon. On the subject of Far From The Man In Crowd, we're kind of halfway through. Yeah. Uh, this is an anonymous, I've just noticed it's anonymous. I was about to read out the, the name from the top of the email, which would have been very bad. Oh, I've listened to the show for a few years, says Anonymous. Never thought I had a reason to write in before. However, with the impending release of Far From The Manning Crowd, I thought I should, as my little brother was an extra in the film. He filmed three scenes that he could remember. We haven't seen the film, so could Mark and Simon look out for a 13-year-old boy with blonde curly hair in the harvest scene, the barn dance, without Dave Swarbrick, and in his own words... The bit after there's a big fair and Kerry Mulligan has a talk with the Belgian bloke with the unpronounceable name. Apparently he's in the background of that one playing with some rope (laughs) and talking to a ginger boy. The whole boy is ginger. He's ginger all over. (laughs) Anyway, well, certainly uh, anonymous with the 13-year-old boy who hopefully made it into the edit. And if he's in... It may have been a still of him that was actually in Avengers Age of Ultron that I saw. It could could have been him and not Pazuzu. Not Pazuzu. Anyway, we haven't mentioned... Have we mentioned the boy, this guy who's the Belgian bloke who uh, the 13-year-old could barely remember? Matthias Schoenartz. Schoenartz, that's right. Because listening back to the interview with with Carey, 
You didn't get a mention? No, but that's because you were too busy talking to Kerry. Well, I was fast talking about Kerry, but and, also... And drop it and going, oh, well, the last time I was hanging with Meryl Streep. Yeah, I met Meryl Streep. But you know, that, all that, all that is true. Yeah. However, it's also that maybe it's because Gabriel Oak does not exactly dominate the movie. No, uh, and, and, and in fact, none of the men dominate the movie. Uh, as, I, as I was saying before, it is absolutely Bathsheba Everdeen's story, rather than the story of her suitors, all of whom sort of suffer... A, 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 it, I mean, it's at the very, very beginning, Gabriel Oak proposes, and there's a scene in which you know, he brings around a lamb and says, I've brought a lamb, would you like to marry me? And she says, no, I'd like to be independent. Then later I'll on... I'll give you a piano. I'll give you a piano. And then later on, William Bulbert says, you want to get married? I'll give you a piano. She says, I've already got a piano. But then, of course, it's, you know, Sergeant uh, Troy who turns up with his sword-waving skills. And funnily enough, because it, it is impossible to sort of to extricate this from the, the Schlesinger version, the sword-waving scene in which Frank does this kind of, you know, great display of his swordsman-like skills, which is very, very close to being, you know, it's a sort of erotic scene. And it's funny because in the new version, it's done in a way which is more sort of, you know, gropey, lusty. But actually what it doesn't have is the breathless weirdness of that sequence in the, in the Schlesinger version is extraordinary. And, uh, you know, Nick Rogue is large. But it is absolutely bizarre. That sequence in the Schlesinger version is the thing that everybody remembers. You forget how mad it is. And that madness is certainly reined in. And one of the things that I think is, a, is an interesting comparison between these two versions, I mean, the Schlesinger version is longer and has stuff anyway. It has, for example, the, the whole carnival sequence, which is... V- which is, you know, very central to it. If the, if the Schlesinger version has the edge, it's in terms of its muddiness. The Schlesinger version feels in that kind of Andrew Cotting way that it's stuck in hands. What does that hands. mean? Well, an Andrew, Cotting, Andrew Cotting is a, is a filmmaker who made things like This Filthy Earth. So, and, and, and you, I missed that. No. Actually, did you? I, did I? I don't know. Did I, did I miss that? I, it's I that I sense did, actually, of, you know, just literally checked. having your hands in the mud. If there, if there is a flaw to um, to this version of Far From the Madding Crowd, there was a couple of moments in which the dirt on the faces looked a little bit designer. It looked a little bit like, do you know what I mean? There was a couple of moments with there's a... There's a Farm clothes by Armani. Farm clothes by Armani with a little smudge on the cheek, but just enough to say, hey, I'm working with... Did, you. did you at, at, at any stage think they could be in Mumford & Sons? <laughs> I didn't think that. I, I did think that. But did you? Okay. It is a little bit Mumford in places. But the other thing, the, the other thing that's interesting about it is, I thought it looked beautiful. And Charlotte Ross Christensen, who's Christensen, who shot it, it was the cinematographer. I went to the to the IMDb, which said that it was shot on Arriflex. I thought it's weird because it what does that mean? That it was shot digitally, and actually, it looked uh, not on Arriflex, an Ari Alexa, pardon me, um, and. It looked to me like it was... I've read a couple of interviews in which it was indeed. It was originated on film stock, which makes sense because it does have that texture. And what's interesting about the film is that, therefore, it is modern, but it's also oddly old-fashioned. It's oddly old-fashioned in the way in which it wants to look. It's not just to do with it being a period piece. It's to do with them talking about the texture of film. It's got a kind of fairly straightforward... I mean, when you think that Winterberg is famous for Feston celebration and uh, Yagtan, if that's the correct pronunciation, The Hunt, which are these two incredible, I mean, really emotionally gruelling stories. Oh, Kerry Mulligan said that's why she wanted to work Yeah, with absolutely. But what you're not getting with Far From the Madding Crowd is that, actually. You don't get that real edginess that, that Vinterberg made his name with. What this is, is a very solid, very handsomely mounted, very intelligently written and, you know, well-played adaptation. What it isn't is raw or rough around the edges, or, um, you know, sort of incendiary. 
it's there, it feels very solid. And I don't mean that in, in a bad way. I mean, it's a film that is perfectly happy when it needs to, although there's a lot of interior stuff in it. It is happy to, to, to relish the countryside, to, you know, to show you these vistas, not so much so as the Schlesinger, but to show you these kind of vistas of, you know, rolling fields and sheep. There are, there are a couple of shots of sheep, incidentally, which, what? You're giving me a funny look. No, no, no. I just wonder when you say it's not incendiary. I was just just processing what you're telling me about. Yeah, I mean, but as, but, but the book. It's a while since I read it, but yeah. maybe it's therefore more faithful to the Thomas Hardy because the book is not incendiary no. and lustful. It has all that stuff, but Schlesinger was the person who put it into his movies. So yes, were... I, I know. I agree. I don't think it's necessarily a criticism of it. It is. It is just. It's a. It's a fairly well. I mean, it's having fun. It's reverential of the text. It's also having fun with the text. I think Mulligan is terrific. I think Michael Sheen is great. At doing, I mean, really looking like somebody who is so, you know, pent up and overall. The other thing that's interesting is that there is more sympathy for the character of Sergeant Troy in this than perhaps you might expect. When he gets jilted at the altar early on and you see him shed a tear, there is a suggestion that all the later anger and everything it has to be tempered by that element of pathos, which, of course, is something that you didn't get from Terence Stamp. You get a lot of things from Terence Stamp, but not pathos. So my general feeling about it was a really good, solid, intelligent, well-made adaptation, a little safe around the edges sometimes, not raw or ragged or quite earthy enough for me, but with a very strong playing up of the films, of, of, the, of the story's feminist thrust, which I liked very much. And... And you know, handsome viewing, and I think it will stand the test of time. I think it's a movie that people will go back to. You know, there was an adaptation, there was a version of uh, Great Expectations recently, and everybody said, "Well, how you know, you you live in the shadow of previous versions. You can't make Far from the Madding Crab without relating to the session version." But I think this version finds its own terrain. And the top and, and top stars, Carrie and Michael. Yeah, and but Carrie Mulligan is a brilliant piece of casting for that film. Beatrice, uh, who's in London. Dear Dr. Sheepdog and Dr. Sheep, um, anyway, as an LTL is in the final throes of a PhD in Victorian literature, I was thrilled to get the chance to see a preview of Far From the Manning. OK, fine, so here we go, the informed view. Exactly. Good, I thought, something to get everybody reading the novel again, as Twilight did for the Brontes. Unfortunately, what I saw was a film so preoccupied with the stunning Dorset landscapes that it forgot to be dramatic. Hardy's stories ought to feel as inexorable as the changing of the seasons, but the film fails to make you care for any of the characters... Or oh, their, I don't agree with that. ..or their fate, so that when certain tragic events happen... <laughs> it's passed into the lexicon, hasn't it? When certain tragic events happen... It's a Victorian spoiler. When Hamlet true. finds out that thing about Ophelia... The audience broke out in giggles. What? Carrie Mulligan has to act twice as hard as any of her leading men to make the thing come to life. The and audience laughed. And next to her, Matthias Schoenart's performance especially looked underpowered. I would have loved to spend a little more time in the company of fantastic actors like Michael Sheen and Juno Temple, and instead we got rather too much of pouty Tom Sturridge in an anachronistic beanie hat, which was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, anyway. um, I, um, listen, uh, obviously I defer to your greater knowledge. Um, this is Beatrice I, that you're talking to, not me. Yes, I don't yes. defer to your greater knowledge. No. Um, I, I'm surprised that you think that you don't sympathise with any of the characters. I think you do. I think you absolutely sympathise sympathize with Bathsheba, which is, and you raised this in the interview, which is interesting because in many ways she can be read as a difficult, spiky mm -hmm. character, particularly when, she's, when she appears to be sort of, you know, snubbing... I mean, the, the scene in which you talked about, the scene in which she snubs Michael Sheen, Michael Sheen is, you know, he does... You do care about Michael Sheen? Of care course, about of course Baldwin. you care about him, because he's decent. Yes. You know. Sorry, Beatrice. As opposed to Troy. Uh, James... Although, actually, as an even Troy, I think, is seen with a moment of sympathy before he goes full 
lascivious person. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what she saw in him, really. He was clearly a bounder. He's, he had a way with a sword. Well, he was a bounder he, from... The, and his, he had a weak chin. Never trust a man with a weak chin. And a big sword. Those okay. two things. Not a good combination. James Beckett's in West Dorset. I've just come out of a screening of FFMC. Whilst Are I, we calling it that now? I hope not. Uh, it, it does look like something that you'd text yeah. with a hashtag. OMG. FFSC, FFMC, no, <laughs> whatever. Whilst I found the film mildly entertaining, I could not help but be reminded of another film shot in West Dorset, which I disliked, Tamara Drew. As per Tamara Drew, I could not care less which of the three potential suitors the main character ended up with and felt the film was at its best when showing the beautiful countryside. I just didn't think it actually showed a lot of the countryside. No, I'm, there's if, if, some of it, but not that much. It, it indulges it when it does, but there's an awful lot of it which, which takes place in the, indoors. In fact, you did get the sense that although you know, they, they, they're not shy of showing the audience the beautiful countryside, that actually they weren't over-egging that. It, it, was, it was more internalised than it could have been. Uh, uh, Callie, who's got a BA in archaeology, Hello. is in Newbury. Afternoon, chaps. Will Mark be reviewing Monsters Dark Continent this yep. afternoon? I'm looking for ammunition to convince my other half that he wants to see it after he dismissed Monsters as a dull love story mm-hmm. without watching it. Okay. Well, I thought it was great. And you're right, by the way. Uh, unless Mark says it's rubbish, in which case I'll go for the Avengers instead. Well, Callie, I have to say, you know, if... I don't know how anyone can dismiss Monsters as a dull love story because it... It isn't. It was, it was fabulous. Yeah. So, shall I... Shall I leave do you want to do... Is that, is that now? Yes, it We're is now. Do Monsters now? Yeah, yeah. This is very good. I queued up that up rather nicely. You did. I think it was almost as if you had it planned. So, Monsters Dark Continent, which is the belated sequel to Monsters. The, now, the interesting thing about Monsters, which was a, this Gareth Edwards film, which essentially was the calling card, which then got him the gig doing Godzilla. And, uh, you know, he came on the programme to talk about Monsters. Did he come on to talk yes, about Godzilla as well? Yes, Godzilla as well, yeah. Great, OK. And what was... Thanks for listening. I think I was on that show, Simon. I was just asking for you know, support, because I'm 52 and my memory fails me. Yes. Um, I've lost my plot now. Oh, yes, anyway, so what Gareth Edwards did with that film was to take a tiny little budget, a really small crew, and conjure from almost nothing a story about two sort of misfit strangers who end up going on this, this, going on a journey, going on a journey together. And in the background of all of this are these strange extraterrestrials. And part of what was good about that film was it was him saying, look, I can do all these different things. I can make a film called Monsters, which is actually primarily about the characters. And in order to to film it, they did the journey, and he was saying that they were shooting on cameras, that they would meet people out there who were honeymooning, who had better cameras. Yeah, he bought his his camera. Exactly, yeah. And there was a there was something really special about the fact that that was how Monsters got made. But more importantly, what was clever about Monsters was that it the, the title itself was sort of ironic because it says Monsters, but the monsters are actually in many ways the humans rather not the two central characters, but the monsters are the humans as much as they are these extraordinarily beautiful extraterrestrials. And there's this one wonderful scene in which two of them meet two of the extraterrestrials meet over a garage and they sort of, their tentacles intertwine. It's, it's beautiful and elegiac, right? So now comes a sequel uh, directed by Tom Green, which basically makes the same genre shift that Alien to Aliens did. Alien being this kind of strange mood, I mean, a horror movie, but a moody, you know, slow art piece. Aliens being this time it's war. And that's essentially what you get in the case of monsters, that they, the infected zones have expanded and our, our anti-heroes are uh, soldiers from Detroit being sent out into the war zone where there is insurgency going on, but there are also some monsters in the background. Here's a clip. <laughs> 
Listen up. Five hours ago, we lost comms with a unit in Altaya Desert, which, as you know, is deep IZ. A dense population of MTRs, airstrikes, and hostile insurgent activity. That is our job. Go in, find them, get them out. Now, their last known location was Altaya Village. This here is the unit's evacuation corridor. This here is one big hot zone. We're fourth deployed by chopper, 12 kicks out. Take two Humvees, we go the rest of the way by road. And they're just like us. It could be any one of you out there in this position. I pulled down photo IDs of the men we're looking for. I want you to burn these four men's faces into your heads because we're not coming home without them. I went into Monsters Dark Continent feeling sort of, you know, I was, I was in a state of anticipation because I like Monsters so much and I have to confess that I was very disappointed by the results. One of the problems is that in that genre shift between it being this very moody, very elegiac, it was interesting that it was described in that email as a love story. This really isn't. It is the Aliens war movie. And for the for a good section of it, it is just another shouty, macho uh, war movie, kind of, you know, doesn't have the gripping realism of Kajaki, um, but it's, you know, it's it's guys going to war. There's a kind of narrative going on in the background, which is sort of sub-apocalypse now, kind of existential colonial angst, and it's all kind of leading not very far. That's for the first half of the movie. There are monsters are in the background, but you really can't hear them over the gunfire and the shouting. As it gets into its second half, it moves into something in which is slightly more confident, and the monsters themselves start to make an appearance but you if you there were moments in it where I thought all the things that I like about the first film are absent the stillness the the idea of just simply coexisting hasn't been fully explored it is in the end it's you know it, it it's a a quite brutal war movie that just happens to have aliens that kind of I mean, some there was a the problem with the aliens in the background thing is that that is the essence of Gareth Evans, Gareth Edwards' film as well, is that the monsters are the background noise. The problem with this is that the the foreground noise is so loud that you actually can't hear the background noise going on. And when you remember, though, that elegiac beauty, when you remember that strange, just quiet, that strange sense of stillness and of characters watching each other develop in this odd world which is you know partly the world that you know but partly a destroyed world and then you kind of replace it with the cliches of you know burnt out detroit and uh, middle eastern combat and war is hell and there's an awful lot of you know spittle and truth grinding and people shouting ah because war is and it's fine it's not what i want from monsters i was i was disappointed i there i the performances are very committed i think that some of the location stuff is well done and there are one or two shots that give you a sense of okay i can see where this could have been going but it doesn't and i suspect that most of the people who felt the same way about monsters that i did which was that what you loved about it was that it was actually a love story movie that happened to have extraterrestrials in the background. This is a very, very different beast and not for the better. So Callie, with the BA in archaeology, says, Mon- Monsters Dark Continent, unless Mark says it's rubbish, I'll go to see the Avengers instead. What are you? It's not rubbish, but I, I, it's a disappointment. That or I, Avengers. I would, or Avengers by a million miles. And only because you've said it five times. Isn't it elegiac? I, I pronounce loads of words wrong. But elegiac, you think? Yeah, it's what I, it was what I've always said, but, you know, hey, for age, until the age of 20-something, I thought there was a word crof. I thought when people said when the crow flies, they thought they were saying the crof lies. I only found out it wasn't true when I asked somebody how you spell it. Is this about the same time as you thought Elvis was 
No, a bit earlier than that. A bit earlier than that. Thanks for bringing that up again. a whole other mm-hmm. one. Uh, Matt Bone, uh, Canadian commoner, now in Leafy Purley. No describable qualifications other than a winning smile and a Radio 4 addiction. <laughs> have to do something about that. <laughs> Dear Extra and Terrestrial, what caught me totally off guard watching Monsters Dark Continent, yeah. or MDC, as we're calling it... Is as, just, as no one is calling no. it. ...is just how thoughtful a film it is, given the initially gung-ho protagonists we are introduced to. Contrasting the dereliction of the Detroit home of Johnny Harris's new recruits with the closer and more human family relationships portrayed in the unnamed Middle Eastern country, the battle against the creatures and locals is taking place, MDC asks the question, who really are the monsters, surprisingly well. The trailers for the film do not do it justice, as it is a very thoughtful and, in places, surreal journey. Monsters, sorry, MDC, is a film that has stayed with me in a good way, despite some remarkably telegraphed war movie clichés. The film is beautiful to watch, yet unsettling in a way a film like this usually wouldn't be. I'm looking forward to seeing it again on the biggest screen I can, uh, if those Avengers can move aside just for an evening. Very uh, uh, elegantly and eloquently argued, I wish I had seen the film that you saw, um, and that is partly to do with the fact that, you know, everyone who sees a film sees a different film. That may well be what the filmmakers were aiming for, and it sounds sounds to me like, in your case, they got it right. I also hear, second-hand, because I haven't read his review, but I think Kim Newman liked it too, so obviously, you know, there are, are other opinions. For me... I didn't feel it was thoughtful enough. I just thought it was, you know, aggressive and shouty and actually lacked thought. Can I just say there's a tweet from iDailies, far from Madding Crowd, was all shot on film and processed here in London by iDailies. And it, it, that's why it was in, you looked at it, and when I looked at the IMDb thing, I thought, it can't be digital, can it? And it isn't. It is shot on film. Did uh, Gareth, our friend Gareth Davies, have anything? Ed, Gareth Edwards have anything? Yeah, Gareth Davies is... Gareth Davies has got nothing somebody else. Gareth Edwards, did he have anything to do with Monsters Dark Content? He's an executive producer, and there's a statement by him in the press notes saying that he was thrilled by it. Of course, yeah. But he kind of, by and large, moved on to bigger monsters. Yeah, well, I, I, he's he's down for one of the Star Wars anthology things, and I see that uh, Godzilla Two is in the works. Perhaps. Who what knows? What are you going to treat us with in our final half hour? Mark? We, we are going to do two by two. And we are going to do Unfriended, and we'll do as much else and TV movie of the week and other stuff. If you'd like to get involved in this thing that we're doing, and we can't say it is just a thing, and live streamers have been uh, seeing the glory. Just a thing. They, well, they've seen uh, the gl- our glorious thing uh, because uh, it, we're all being filmed, and it's all. Beautiful. This is very thing one and thing two. Isn't it is. It, it is. Just a little bit. Um, we're after so well. We're going to call you kind of lobby correspondent. So if you if you go see a movie, uh, when you come out, film yourself with an instant review, like 20, 30 seconds. It's all we want, uh, and then email it to the program may at bbc.co.uk. Or if you can't do that, sum up an entire movie in your in a selfie expression. Just take a, yep. a photograph of yourself with the appropriate expression for the movie and email it to may at bbc.co.uk. So okay. the, the face palm or the, you know, yeah. well, however. You can tweet us at Wizard Entertainment, but basically if you go and see a movie, uh, give us an instant, you and your, it could be you and your friends, in just outside the movie, uh, outside the cinema, or as you're coming out, obviously don't take out your phone while you're in the cinema. No, be because then we are automatically disqualified. That's right. Uh, email the programme, mayo at bbc.co.uk. Thanks, and then we'll tell you about our thing next week. Uh, TV movie of the week, mm-hmm. um, Taff Hughes says, I think it's from Russia with Love, the best Bond, and also <laughs> one where the adaptation <laughs> from the book worked better than the actual novel. <laughs> 
We so. better put that on our playlist. Okay. The original. Uh, Krishna Nagavulu says, I think Mark's going to pick Wally. Perfect ode to silent cinema. And a perfect ode to silent running. Ben Keeler, a lot of cult hits this week. The Elephant Man, Airplane, Wolf Creek, Donnie Darko, Monsters, Inglorious, uh-huh. and all films most people are likely to have seen at one point or another. Wally is a little underrated, in my opinion. Uh, to Catch a Thief is an underrated Hitchcock. Uh, I myself, says Ben, would either be up for Alan Parker's Angel Heart, because I've wanted to watch it for a while, oh, or... do, do. It's really good. From Rush With Love. Anyway, what is the pick? What is TV of movie? Well, I, I, I would say, as far as Angel Heart is concerned, Angel Heart really is good. I saw it again, we, I showed it at a festival, you know, a year or so ago, and it, it still holds up, with the exception of the, of the silly glowing eyes thing, which he was forced to do. It really, in ter- terms of adaptations of novels, it's based on the, the William Hewitzberg novel, Falling Angel, it's really good. Uh, however, I'm going to go for Monsters, which we were talking about now, because for me... You know, Monsters, Dark Continent, Monsters, the original Gareth Edwards, is is everything that Dark Continent isn't. It is on, and you will be unsurprised to learn this, at 10 past 11, Sunday the 3rd of May, on Film 4. <laughs> but you've seen it already. Um, well, only when Gareth came in. OK, when, fine. when it came out. And it, and I have a Blu-ray. I have a Blu-ray of it that's signed by Gareth uh, Edwards, which says, you're welcome in my bedroom any time, because he had done all the special effects, the visual effects. Sorry, I must stop doing that. He had done all the visual effects in his uh, in his bedroom on his computer, and he was showing me how he'd done it in l- genuinely bedroom guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, it's a nice bedroom. It's like an apartment. It's not his bed. It's like an open. What do you call it? I mean, he probably now owns an entire floor in Los Angeles. But nice to hear that anecdote again. Anyway, so uh, what else is, uh, is is claws in is out this week? Claws in. Who's in that? <laughs> Not a bad title for a movie, actually. That could be the follow-up to Daylight Twinosaur. Thank you. Uh, two by Two, a.k.a. Oops, the Ark has left. Or oops. What? Yeah. I, t- two by... T- you, t- wherever you look, this is... Um, it has to, So it's a Germany, Luxembourg, Belgian, Ireland co-production, and it has all the Euro pudding that you would expect from that. And it's called Two by Two, dot, 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 Oops, the Ark has left, and in some territories it's called Oops, the Ark has left. I'm is Sid James in it? <laughs> Ooh, uh, Mrs. But everything's got that, oops. There, no, uh, yes, oops. The, so anyway, it's a, uh, an animated uh, feature a, uh, about animals uh, have to get onto the ark. You remember the whole thing with uh, Russell Crowe, you know, oh yeah, rah, kind of imply it's that, but done How from the that? other side of you. You remember Russell Crowe as uh, Noah? Yes. Um, yeah. So it's that story, Simon. It's the biblical story, oh, which is now one. referred to with, with, with less Transformers. Anyway, all the animals have to get to the Ark. There's a Nestrian and a Grimp. And due to circumstances unforeseen, the Nestrian and the Grimp are left behind. The, the Nestrian likes hugging. The Grimp is rah, But they have to team up with some other people in order to... With some other uh, animals, including a giant slug and a sort of weird stay-putty mollusk thing called stay-put, voiced by our own, our very own Chris Evans' is a clip. Thanks for helping us. I'm Finny. And this is Leah. Uh, she, um... She's not much of a talker. <laughs> My name's Obesi. Are you talking to yourself again? <sighs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> Why aren't you kids on the ark? Are you rejects too? He's the reject, not me. Our presence on the ark wasn't welcome either. Hey, speak for yourself, fatso. <clears throat> that stupid flamingo just messed up my paperwork. 
I'm sorry about him. He stuck himself to me two years ago. He won't get off. The name's Stapot. I'm a beastie's best friend. You are so annoying. <laughs> we joke like this all the time. Now I have to share my last moments with a constantly chattering backseat driver. That that's quite disturbingly off-putting, isn't it? Because it was no, it's Chris Evans. Well, on the poster, I'm not Captain America. Yeah, and on the poster, it's, exactly. It says, you know, Chris Evans' voice is type, but it's not very good. Um, it's very innocuous. There's nothing to offend, even less to excite. If you've seen Madagascar or Ice Age or any of those uh, franchises, you will have seen basically all this stuff done better. There are a couple of, you know, a couple of giggles en route, but certainly no more than that. It did have, it did have that kind of uh, co-production puddingy feel to it, and uh, it it's really genuinely unremarkable. It's a strange bland. week for release, don't you? Mm. Because we're we, I know it's a bank holiday weekend, but. You'd think it would come out at Easter or at half term or in the summer. Or you'd think it might just be coming out now. Because? Perhaps perhaps because it's slightly unloved. Okay. It's not very good. Sorry, there we are. That there is there is almost nothing more to say about it. Can I can What's I, the title? It's called Two by Two, but it's also on some publicity called Oops, the Ark has left, or two by two dot dot dot. Oops, the arc has left. And when you look it up on the IMDb, it comes up as oops, the arc. Believe me, in a way, this is worrying about it okay. more than needs to be. I apologise for that. So two things to do. Firstly, yes. so I want to mention Samba. So Samba is a film which is the latest uh, production from the people that made Intouchable, Untouchable, if you remember, with uh, uh, Omar Sy, um, uh, Olivia Nakash and Eric Toledano. I, I, don't, I don't remember now. Oh, you don't remember Untouchable? It was a huge, huge French hit. Absolutely huge French hit. Um, so this has a very similar feel in as much as it's dealing with a serious story but doing it with kind of heartwarming, touching comedy. So Omar Sy is a, a Senegalese kitchen worker who suddenly faces deportation from France where he has lived for the past 10 years. Uh, Tahar Rahim is his best friend who alleges to be Brazilian, but, you know, during the course of the movie, you discover that because when he says that we can't say I'm Brazilian, it's kind of a gag that he is. And uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is the burnt-out lawyer, but burnt-out executive who ends up volunteering as uh, an immigration uh, advocate. And she, therefore, ends up taking on Omar Sy's case. And so he finds in her an advocate, but also during the course of the drama, something more. And it's about friendships being forged across unlikely boundaries. It's also about people on the margins of society and what their life is like. And actually, uh, it, as with all of uh, these filmmakers' work, it takes its serious subject and gives it a very, very sort of, you know, uh, palatable dose of sugar. Sometimes I think people think, it, think of it as like maybe too sentimental, too syrupy, but I rather, I rather liked it. I liked the fact that what it was was it's a drama which is dealing with immigration, it's dealing with, you know, employment issues, and yet... It's you know it's playing very much toward the mainstream. Terrific central performances. Omar Sy was was great. Charlotte Gainsbourg is really good at doing that. You know her, she's in a way the sort of the the, the weight because her character is somebody who has had an executive job and has burnt out. This the story is that she was in a meeting and she hit somebody with a mobile phone, and you get the feeling with Gainsbourg that although it's in the end the the main register of the film is gently warmly sort of sentimental and comedic with these sort of dark passages it, towards the end in the final movement it moves into melodrama which is rather ill judged and rather ill footed I thought 
But for the rest of the time, she actually does give her character, you know, real depth. And, and Omar Sy is a terrifically likeable performance. And Tahar Rahim gets to just let rip as this sort of force of nature character who's very much a kind of, you know, a mercurial, uh, you know, fantastical figure who sort of spins stories about himself and is really charming and dances. And there's, there's a scene which kind of mimics that famous Coke ad when they're window washing. So it's dealing with a serious and, uh, you know, and often downbeat subject matter, but it's doing so in a way which is heartwarming and warm. I it was kind of cute. I liked it, and I like the performances very much. Take it away. What else is, uh, is out there? So, Unfriended um, is this uh, new uh, cyber uh, horror movie. You've almost certainly seen the adverts. There's been quite a lot of news articles written about it. The story essentially is a group of uh, young friends are having a uh, having a, a an online Skype chat and iMessaging each other, and whilst they're doing all this, a faceless troll who appears to be channeling the spirit of a fellow student who died a year ago turns up in their, within their chat and whatever they do, they can't get rid of the troll. And the, the, the sort of the sucker punch of the movie is that the whole thing plays out on the computer screen of one of the protagonists. So as you're watching it, what you're watching is the computer screen, which has got these pop-up windows, which is uh, video chats, which is uh, iMessages, which is the Spotify stuff, which is links to YouTube, which is Google searches. So essentially, for the duration of the movie, you are watching the thing play out on a computer screen. We're going to play you an, uh, an audio clip Obviously, it loses a lot without the visuals. Belle used to have seizures. Uh, Guys, she... Are you sure? Yeah, she remember. told me, a, like, a long time ago, she had the sickness that causes seizures. Maybe she just had a freaking seizure. Have seen her have a seizure ever? I don't know. I mean... Anybody ever see her have a seizure? I feel bad now. No, did you... They said 1055. 10.55? 10.55? Wait, stress does cause seizures. Okay. Okay, well, I feel bad. I should still deserve it, but I feel bad now. Shit. No, it's a corner case. Okay, okay. What else? 10.45? Val? Oh, my God. Hey! Hey! hey. So what's going on in that is that they're all seeing uh, Val screen. Something has happened to Val. And during the course of the movie, it becomes evident that they are being effectively sort of cyber stalked. And so in many ways, it's, you know, it's uh, the old horror trope. It's the Halloween bloody Valentine. Um, you know, I know what you did. It's the anniversary death thing. Something happened, a secret in the past. And now vengeful spirit is coming back to it. But... Because it's all played out on a computer screen, this incident is not a, not something that's completely original. I mean, if you look, for example, I mean, the idea of computers as being sort of demonic and difficult goes back to Demon Seed and to, uh, you know, Evil Speak, which is the famous video, Nasty. And then you've got Hideo Nakata's chat room, which failed in, in any way to get a handle on what online interaction looks like. In this case, this is a film which actually understands its Skyping culture. And um, so during the course of the movie, you've, each of them is being cyber-stalked with revelations coming out online which are, which are causing the protagonists to turn against each other. And as I said, the central gimmick is that it's, it plays out on the computer screen. So whilst you're watching it, you're seeing windows within windows, you're following text messages, you're seeing... And I think your response to it will be to some extent uh, conditioned by how you feel about that culture. If you are an older member of the audience, one of the things that can happen is you can start to feel panicky about, firstly, how much there is to keep up with, you know, where to look, where to, you know... And also the sense of actually these teens being completely dexterous with this. It's like they're not even thinking about the way in which it's working. What makes the film work, however, is that if you are 
at home with the culture and if you are at home with the you know with with the uh, the, the online interaction what it does is says something quite interesting about cyberbullying because many people have seen the trailer say okay you're being stalked through the internet well just log off and the smart thing about the plot is that at several points they all tell each other, they just say log off just turn your computer off walk away but the point is they can't why can't they because they're addicted, because they're addicted to the thing. And I think what's interesting about it is that quite apart from being uh, a, a horror movie which has the strength of its formal convictions, so if you think, for example, of The Blair Witch Project, right, The Blair Witch Project was a film which said, OK, this is going to play out as the found footage of these people who went out to make a documentary in, you know, Burkesville Wood, and we're going to say that that's all there is. There isn't exterior. Sh that's what there is. And at the beginning of Blair Witch, you think this is going to drive me mad. I mean, this is a long time ago. This is kind of like the lodestone of the found footage genre. Obviously, it owes a debt to Regeridae Data's Cannibal Holocaust. Obviously, that's in the background. Of yeah, obviously. It. I know you were going to say that. I was, I was going to want to preempt you before mm -hmm. that you before you brought that up. What about Cannibal Holocaust? I was going yeah, to exactly, say. and that's why I just leapt straight mm -hmm. in there. So, but Blair Witch Project had the strength of its convictions, and despite the fact that the shrieky teenagers, seen all the way through, they're not teenagers; they're young film students seen all the way through on these shaky handheld cameras. This is going to drive me mad. Actually, what it did was it made the thing believable. It made it credible. I know people who saw Blair Witch when it first came out who genuinely thought, is this real? Is this, is this actually real? Well, in the, case of, um, uh, in the case of Unfriended, which at one point was called Cybernatural, what it has is the strength of its conviction. Um, so although a movie like Open Windows last year might have sort of looked at doing this, this is a complete sort of hermetically sealed world in which actually the irony of it is that whilst they're all online trying to figure out, you know, are, are, is one of them playing the trick on the other one? Who is, you know, who's actually behind all this, these Facebook messages that they're getting from somebody who appears to be dead? Who's hacked into that account? And they all start distrusting each other. And in fact, what the movie is doing is it's saying you're looking... You're looking the bogeyman straight in the face, and the bogeyman is the screen itself. And in many ways, it's, you know, a shrieky, teen, uh, terrorised uh, slasher movie. But actually, below that, it's a film which is about the, the fact that cyberbullying only works if you partake in it, if you cooperate with it, if you give it... And all the way through the film, there's links that come up between don't click that link, don't do this, don't do that, and they do. And why do they? Because actually the underlying theme of it is that it's to do with the fact that you can't turn the screen off. I went into it feeling a little bit cynical about uh, you know how well or how thoroughly this uh, this this idea of playing the thing out on a computer screen would work, and I have to say, I was rather impressed by it. I mean, the the guiding light behind it all is is Timo Bekmambetov, who was kind of a, a producer who had first had the idea and then got in um, Levin Gabriazzi, who's the director, and um, Nelson Greaves, who's the screenwriter, and it's brilliantly edited. That's the other thing to say. It all looks like it's done in real time. It looks like actually the actors are all skyping their performances. I mean, they're they're not. The actors are separated in different rooms, and they go they have GoPro cameras that are filming them, so they are talking to each other through cyber links, although not through, you know, through, through internet links. But, and then afterwards, that footage is then edited very heavily. And I, all credit to the, to the editors who've done a really terrific job of editing this stuff into something which is oddly gripping. Also, a lot of the screenwriting was done in post because it's to do with iMessages being written after the fact. I was surprised by how well it worked. I, some people will find it unbelievably annoying. Some people will just will just do that thing of going, just turn the computers off. But that's the strength of it. The strength of it is it's not playing to that audience. It's playing to the audience that understand that you can't. You have to look. You have to be part of it. You can't unplug. And that 
is what makes it work? Well, I think... I did think Far From the Madding could well be your movie of the week, but I think I can pick up on a few little inflections that are going to suggest that you might be choosing that as the movie of the week, but we'll just have to wait another three minutes before we find that out. If that's all right. Mark, well, what are these inflections you speak of? Well, I, no, I'm just picking up body language. Okay. Mark Liddell, um, a friend and I currently in the last four days of our final year of popular music production at Southampton Solent University, currently watching you live on the webcam as a special concentration-inducing treat. Really? <laughs> My friend Lucy is with me in the library trying to concentrate and I have mentioned your holy podcaster in the past, yet to no, no real effect. I have convinced her to watch slash listen to the live show while she types and thought that perhaps a big hello Mark and Lucy from your good self, Mark may convince her to give you guys a go and give us the go-go juice we need to power through these long dissertation writing sessions during the final stretch. Anyway, so Mark, thank you very much indeed and, uh, and, uh, and, and Lucy. Lucy, who are at the moment hello using us as a concentration aid. I'm surprised that at no point in that unfriended review did you say to me that computer screen thing is that Brechtian alienation device. I'm just surprised. I was like leaving it open for you and you just didn't. That's true. I, I, I just realised I need a new one. I haven't... My old Brechtian alienation device has, has been broken worn down. out. Has broken down. Look, we've got a couple of minutes. Can you squeeze in uh, 15 reviews? Anti I'll just do Antisocial, which is a new movie by uh, Reg Travis. Um, it's, it's two movies in one. One of them is... A, there's two brothers. One of them is a spray painter, and he, he, what he does all this street art. It's kind of Banksy-style street art, and what he really wants is to do his Banksy-style street art, but he's worried that actually if corporate interests become involved, uh, it might become diluted. His brother uh, wants to basically earn a mint by doing a bunch of bank jobs, and he's got a big job coming up, wouldn't you know it, called Blind. Is a clip. Well, that's why I brought Tim along today. He's got the details on something you might be interested in. What is it? It's a big job. Serious amount of money to be made. But it ain't smash and grab. This is firearms full planning. Chris said that you could handle it. But I ain't going to stick it up to you if you're then going to turn around and say no. Nah, we're up for it. Right, we'll fence the goods for a 20% commission. And we get a 10% of the overall for sticking the job up. Done. Crafts, jewellers on Bond Street. They can have a consignment of special gems, diamonds, gold jewellery, within the next week or so. You're looking at a face value of at least 20 million quid. You're in my chair. Shut it. Shut it. Now. Uh, the, the odd thing about the film, is, it, I, I didn't like it very much. I think it's very, very flawed. But the oddest thing about it is that it's basically got these two things. And one of them is that's is that movie. You know, we're going to go in there with the shooters and the smasher and we're going to get the thing, get the lovelies, get the put stuff. it on the, on the stuff, lovely jubbly. And the other side of it is the, the brother who's interested in the street art and in the politics of street art keeps going off and having long conversations about the dilution of street art and the politics of street art and what he... And then they'll go back to, yeah, anyway, we're back in the thing with... The, and what's frustrating about it, and I think what makes it a, a film that kind of undermines itself in a strange way, is it keeps looking like it's about to do something interesting, like it's trying to do something interesting. There are some nice performances. Andrew Shim is rather good, but he always is. And yet it cannot escape its leery, laddie, you know, London, let's stick the reddies in the boot and do a runner for it because the roses are on the way. And so it ends up just falling between... It's not terrible. In fact, the the thing that highlights its problems is that there are moments when it's trying to do something more interesting. It's trying to be a different movie. And in a way, that kind of undermines it, which is a kind of shame. Uh, movie of the week, what would you go for? I'm going to go for a joint of unfriended... And Madding Crowd. So I'm going to call it Unfriended from the Madding Crowd.
Yes, an unfortunate pause there, just as you uh, revealed your final movies. Thank you very much. Why? You said you were going for a joint. And then you explain oh, what the movies were. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live, a controversial finish. Next week we're on Thursday, because the election we're on Thursday, not Friday. John Stewart. Yes, John Stewart is our guest. See you next week. Here's Drive. Well, and that was, uh, I think that was a pretty good show, and uh, it had some surprising moments. Apparently so. Particularly that's, so. That's a, well, that's Mark a, is now back, uh, and there's a strange roamer in the studio. So I, is that what you do? <laughs> when you say, I've just got to go to the loo. This, okay, this, is, this, is the, the, this is the curse of me never finishing my sentences. People say this all the time. I don't finish my sentences. What I do is I get halfway through a sentence and I just imagine, you know what the rest of it is. And, but I, I tell you, I do it more with you and you should take this as a compliment. Yes. You know why, don't you? Because I know, it, do I know why? What, you because it's, it's, like that, that, it's like that thing that... I don't know whether you do this with uh, the good lady... Um, uh, Pottery indoors. Potter, good lady pottery indoors. No, but it's not pottery. What's it? What's the ceramic? Good, ceramic good lady garfield. ceramicist indoors. Ceramicist indoors. <laughs> yes, fine. But you start. What you do is because you realise that you've you've you know you've said everything. So you start saying something, and then you because it's it's fine. So you go. Have you got the? Yeah. And did you? Yeah. Really? Did he? Oh, he fine. And that's like a ten-minute conversation. <clears throat> oh, okay. Just condense that. And I do it with you because we've been in the studio for so long that I feel like I can go. Sure. And you've said most things over the years, but I don't think you've ever said. I'm going for a joint. I'm going for a joint and then stop long enough for everyone to go, I'm not sure that's legal. I re- and, if, and if you are, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it on the radio if I were you because the Rosas... <laughs> the Rosas. There he is. It's him. He's stoped over there. <laughs> Go and get him. There was, I was... There's I a, a ganja. There's a friend of mine who is um, a very good writer. This is no, Oi, this is a, shut it. Shut it. This is a no-names-no-pactual story. There's a friend of mine who's a, 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 an academic and a writer who, who, who writes about... Um, uh, drugs? Low, no, he doesn't write about drugs. He doesn't write about drugs at all. Um... You know how when people get into sort of retro culture, if they're into, you know, like uh, cowboys or, or, you know, hillbilly stuff, or they, they start to live and breathe it and everything they wear and everything they say and everything they speak. And he was telling me a story once about somebody who was so immersed in that sort of world that he was once on an, on an, in an altercation. He was in a house and the, the Rosas turned up and he did a runner. And as he did a runner, he turned and shouted, you'll never catch me, Flatfoot. What, just because, <laughs> just was... because that's what they would have done seventy years ago. Did they cop him? Oh, I think he was banged to rights. No, no, <laughs> well, certainly was. They probably all went. What? <laughs> who calls? Who says Flatfoot? Who says Rosers? Who says Rosers? Did they call him Chummy? All right, Chummy. All right, Chummy. Yeah, come along with us. Anyway, we're done. Is there anything else you want to do? No, I think that's good. I think we did loads. I think we, I think we did loads. We should j- just a final reminder: we're on Thursday next week. Why uh, is that, Simon? Uh, because there's a general election. Is there? We're not going to be filmed next. Is week. it electing? I hadn't noticed. I will. I will miss uh, Beardy Boy and Goatee Guy. Uh, you love that joke now, don't you? They might be our future friends, but we don't know because at the moment it's just a thing. Should, should they not say hello? Since this is the podcast oh, extra, should we? Should they not be forced to say hello? Yeah. I think, okay. Goatee hello. Guy. Thanks very much. Hello. Thank you. And goodbye. A beardy boy. Uh, hello and goodbye. Thank you very much. That was a great feature, wasn't it? We could work that up into like a big thing. Yeah, we almost certainly could. <laughs> we almost certainly won't. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much indeed. Uh, we'll tell you about our thing next week because the thing might be a bigger thing by. Because why, why? Sorry. Can I ask grow. why are we not talking about the thing now? I didn't realise that it was subjudice. Well, we can say it's a thing, but we can't just say what it is. Somebody said. Somebody tweeted in to say the best court-based drama is, of course, Wimbledon. It's a tentative thing. It might not happen. It might...
Well, this the thing. The thing that's happening now is happening. You can't it, say it might not happen. It is happening in the world in which we live. But it might be that only we experience it and no one else experiences it. Is that? No. But you. And I said. And, and then you. And then. All right. Are you going to go for a joint? Definitely. If you are. Have you got any left? Movie of the week. <laughs> Can I just say, make it's absolutely gonna... clear? <laughs> we're just joking. Can I also yeah. say there's no chance of any of this actually going out? Yeah. Apart from the one they actually said on the <laughs> air, said on and it's too late for that one. Thanks for listening. It's going to—it's go, it's going to be, you know, what is, what's it? Gonna, it'll be all right on the night seventy-eight, isn't it? Why are we on on Thursday next week? Why are we on Thursday next week? No, I just asked you a question. Oh, because there's a traditionally gen- that was needs an answer. It's a general. When election. are we on next week? We're on Thursday. What time? Is that your phone? Yeah, it's my daughter. Take the call. It's Check. clearly important. Take the call. Go on. Okay, I take the call. Fine. Oh, she's hung up. <laughs> she, and, she tends and there we are. Uh, yes. what, what time are we on next week? I don't know. Two o'clock. Two o'clock. What day are we on? Now. Uh, and why? Why are we doing it on a Thursday? Because there's a general election. Who's going to win? Russell Brand. Thanks for listening. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio Five Live. BBC.co.uk/slash/five live.